We're gathered here today to worship together, which is a great experience, music, song together. But we're also gathered here today to recognize what God has done for our congregation in choosing the man who will lead us as senior pastor in the coming years. And we want to commission him today for that job. As they did in the book of Acts, uh, God separated Paul and Barnabas out, and they laid hands on them and sent them out. Well, we're not going to send Becky and Chris clear out of the country. We're going to keep them right here. But we're going to send them into the ministry here with uh, as God's appointed and God's chosen servants. And as the... <clears throat> Elder and as chairman of the public committee, I want to affirm to you this morning that I really believe that this is the man God has chosen to lead us as senior pastor. Eight, nine months ago, if you'd asked me that same question, would I have voted as an elder for Chris, I would have said no. I didn't believe at that point in time that he was the man that God was calling. And so in this ensuing months that have gone by, both myself and yourselves have had to wait on God to confirm that this is the man that he has called, and he has done that. We've seen him work in the lives of the, in the hearts of the five men on the pulpit committee, and also in the, among the elders, and we've had affirmation from you, you people as to why were we so long in choosing this man. Didn't you know it when we started this whole process? Well, no, I didn't know it. Some of the others didn't know it. But uh, God led us along to show us that this is who he had chosen. And I am glad today that uh, we can commission Chris and Becky, his wife, because they are a team, and their two daughters as the senior pastor and family of Cole Community Church. And I affirm to you that I really believe that that is what God has done for us as a church. Well, boy, what a, uh, what a treat, what a privilege it is for me to be here this morning. I, uh, as, you, uh, as you may or may not know, I have known Chris for 23 years. Chris and I were students together at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Chris was in my wedding. I was in Chris's wedding. Chris and Becky were the ones who came alongside us when my older brother was killed in a car accident 13 years ago. Becky was there covering for my weakness in the delivery room when three of my children were born. We know the Rudells. We know Chris and Becky Rudell. And for me, it's a privilege to be here because I know him and because I know what his life has been like for years. I know him partially because I know his parents. Fred and Harriet Rudell are here this morning and they'll be introduced to you a little bit later. I know that Chris grew up in a godly household, in a household that the word of God was proclaimed both in word and in deed. I know Chris, uh, when it was so interesting to me when we were together as freshmen, he came to college 
having renewed his relationship with Christ a little bit over a, a year earlier, he came to college basically as a mission field. He came to college believing that he was there in order to be used of God in other people's lives. It wasn't to check out the girls. It wasn't to get an education, although he uh, he got an education in the process. But uh, it was in order to be used of God. And I have seen the way over the years God has prepared Chris for just exactly the role that he has him in right now. I remember sitting with Chris when we were juniors in college and, and reflecting on what the years in the future were to hold. At that point, I didn't know if Chris would go off to the mission field. I didn't know if he would be in lay ministry somewhere. I didn't know if he would be in a pastoral ministry. But I remember the two of us talking about what the Lord had in mind for us and reflecting on uh, on where we would be 20, 30 years down the road. And so for me, it is a treat to be here now knowing that God has prepared this man for years and years and years, using other people in Chris's life, uh, using uh, his own relationship, intimate personal relationship with Chris. God has used all those things to bring him to the place that he's at right now to be our senior pastor. And for me, it's just an honor and a privilege to be a part of this ministry and to sit under his leadership over the years to come. Well, I'm Don Pettinger, and I'm uh, uh, anxious to say a few words from uh, from the perspective of what it's like to serve on staff with Chris. And I made a few jokes in the first service that you know, God just sort of told me it's it's not the day for that. It's not appropriate. To, uh, he clearly said they would be better in the newsletter that's coming up. So, so you can look for them in that. <laughs> But um, seriously, um, as, as I think about Chris and, and reflect on the last 20-plus months that he has, has acted as, uh, as the head of the staff, um, the thing that comes to my mind is, is Christ's words uh, when he said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And as I have observed Chris, I have seen him do that in some different ways. And, and some of the ways that I've observed uh, as he's approached this task of shepherding of, of us as a staff, I've seen him do that with a willingness to enter into some, some, difficult, uh, some difficult situations, um, not an eagerness because he does not enjoy conflict particularly, but he has done so with a diligence and uh, and with a perseverance that have uh, that have really impressed me regarding his heart for for uh, me and for the rest of the staff, I have seen him enter in with a, with a wisdom. I believe Chris to be a man who is gifted beyond his years, and I think that not only as a staff but as a body, we will uh, we will see much of that. Uh, God will use that in our lives greatly. I've also seen Chris enter in with a great deal of humility. He has not seen his position as being one of authority and privilege, but rather one of service, as I've mentioned. How he can use his position to minister to others and to serve others through the, the decisions that he makes, through the, through the ways that he approaches people, has been a, an earmark of what I've seen him do. 
And lastly, and, and probably most importantly, uh, that I would mention this morning would be just Chris's love for the Lord. I, I have just seen a great love for God in, uh, in Chris. Um, he challenges me in my relationship with God to open up my heart places that I have not yet opened it. Uh, I want to uh, continue to uh, serve with Chris, to have him challenge me in that regard. Uh, he loves the Word. He not only he not only teaches the Word with great effectiveness, I believe, but he he imparts the Word to me through his life, and his life challenges me. So I know he'll do that with all of us, and and uh, I'm just uh, feel real blessed to be on staff with Chris. So right now, uh, we've heard a lot about him. Uh, let's bring him up and see if he's as tall as we think he is. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, the elders had asked me to come up and uh, share very quickly a little bit of my uh, vision with you all. Uh, before I do, let me tell you what a vision is, uh, at least uh, part of what it is. Sometimes in Scripture, the term vision is used for kind of a um, waking dream where you where you see things that aren't physically there. I thought maybe with the uh, medication for my back problems that I would have one of those for you uh, this morning, but it uh, just didn't happen. Another way the, the term is used in Scripture is to refer to the activity of one of God's prophets, who, who God showed in a vision His Word, and, and, and that prophet wrote it down and, and, and brought us new Scripture. Well, again, that's not what I'm bringing to you. I have uh, no new Scripture to offer. And the way the term is used most often means to look at intently, to, to, to see, paying attention to, in fact, in the Song of Solomon, the term is used uh, of a man looking with, uh, with affection and adoration at his lover. I think that's far more to the point of, of what I'm doing. I want to look intently, to gaze at our lover, our God, and to see him. And then to come from that, uh, knowing him, getting to know him, and, and to just share with you. Where I think He's taking us. What I think He wants to give us. And I don't speak for God. God speaks for Himself. But I, uh, I, I want to speak to you out of seeing Him. Also, uh, have to confess that I don't know a lot. Um, I would probably know a lot more if I didn't have to learn the same lessons over and over in my life. So I don't stand up here in front of you as someone who has or even pretends to have all of the answers. But I do stand up here as someone to whom God has given a profound love for you people, for this church, for his kingdom and what he wants to do. And so it's out of that that I want to speak. Uh, Having uh, seen God out of my relationship with him and my love for you. A vision is not a mysterious thing. It is just what I want to see for all of you. Now, how that works out, and the details, how we get there, 
um, is going to be a product of, of us working together over the years as God gives you dreams and visions for your ministry in your life and in this church. But this is what I want for you. I want to see the families, the, the homes of this church be safe havens, uh, 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 refuges of peace and love and righteousness, not because everybody pretends that that's the way it is, and not because of some uh, enforced superficial peace, but because there is real and, and honest and mutual, even tearful resolution of problems and issues in the family. I want to see the home a place where marriages are a man and a woman profoundly in love with God and in love with each other, treating each other with dignity and respect uh, as equal partners, not as opponents, really serving each other, forgiving each other, understanding each other, encouraging each other toward God and toward, toward healthy relationships. I want to see homes, places where parents have confidence and competence Yet at the same time, humility and gentleness in their parenting. Where they, they, they really engage themselves prayerfully in preparing their children for life. Giving them understanding. Giving them wisdom. Giving them discipline. I want to see homes a place where children are secure and playful. And growing in their understanding of God's love for them. His his love for each of them individually, growing in, in their understanding of how to love people, respecting, valuing, understanding their parents. I want to see homes as a place where the, the, the unmarried adult member of the family has a natural, comfortable place to take part in the life of the family. I want to see homes as a place where, where uh, every member is submitted to the Word of God as the standard in their lives, where, where each person from the, the oldest to the youngest child knows that God is the boss in this home, where each person and the family together is committed to and active in ministering to others outside of the family in the name of Christ. I also want to see the men of this church putting a premium on pursuing God, on, on leading in their families by being the servant of the family by cherishing their wives if they're married, praying for their children, and being honestly vulnerable before them. Where for the single man as well as the married man, that men in this congregation are moving into relationships with each other, open, honest relationships, where, where they can be encouraged, where there's real caring, where there's real support and accountability, helping each other uh, be faithful, have integrity in relationships, encouraging each other to respond to God's Word, encouraging each other to use their time and energy and resources for God's kingdom as a priority above their own financial goals and interests. I want to see the women in this congregation using their gifts, not just their serving gifts, but their speaking gifts as well, growing in their confidence in God's ability to use them for significant eternal ministry, for His glory. I want to see the women loving their children and their husbands selflessly, while at the same time recognizing the important loving ministry of helping their husband and their children understand them, 
Understand their needs and their desires and dreams and hopes. Insisting on moving toward healthy relationships in the family. I want to see the role of single women valued and respected here among us. I want to see the children and the young people of this congregation growing in their awareness, their understanding of God's grace, their their, their appreciation of, of God's Spirit able to use them, recognizing they're not just future missionaries and ministers, They are current missionaries and ministers right where God has them. Uh, Useful to Him for for meaningful, significant ministry. I want to see us reach the next generation with the gospel. You know, the so-called Generation X. They're largely absent from us. Waiting for us to discover from God and His Word how to reach them, how to challenge them, how to equip them as the next generation of leaders for us. We live in a time where people around us are confused and hopeless. So many of us come out of, of destructive families. The, the very concept of righteousness seems lost. The, the way to life often seems just buried under years of debris. The needs around us and among us and in us are enormous. That's the way it's always been. And it's God's design to, 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 For each of us, each one of us, to know Him. And out of that become His instruments to to love and to heal the people around us in in our families, in in, in our uh, our workplaces, in our schools, in this church. You see, that's God's desire. And it's my desire to see the ministry of the church here truly be a ministry of the saints. I want each one of you to understand how much God loves you personally. To understand the riches that are yours in Christ. To understand His unlimited ability to use you for His glory. I want each one to have sufficient theological sophistication and Bible teaching and training to be able to tell the the, the difference between truth and error, and to be able to competently and confidently step into the confusion of other people's lives and help them see the truth, help them see God's grace, help them understand their own woundedness and needs, help them understand the Scripture, help them understand how much God loves them because you genuinely love them. Help them move toward God themselves. I want your love to be so strong that you gently, biblically, lovingly pursue those who are ensnared in sin. Now, I want this gathering to be a gathering of ministers, each one uh, investing in the lives of others here and and in our community. I want the uh, gatherings of this church to be a place where the scriptures are humbly taught where truth and grace are emphasized, not opinion and legalism, where we are seeking the kingdom together above our own personal interests, where we are seeing and responding to God's heart for the lost, both around here and around the world, where we are uh, are not holding selfishly to the resources God has given us, either individually or as a church, And we refuse to play church, but instead deal with real life here, where people are free to be themselves, to be honest, to to be confused, to be struggling. 
Rather than pretending to be spiritual, whatever that means. I want this to be a place where we aren't distracted by numbers and money as if those were the goal. Where ministry is intended to and designed to really meet needs and, and to allow uh, allow real ministry to take place rather than just make us feel like we're doing something because we're always busy and tired. I want us together to move toward God's righteousness. And most immediately, I want us, this to become more and more a praying church. I want to be more and more committed to prayer. I want... I, I, I greatly value and respect the, the amount of prayer that goes on. All of you faithful prayer warriors and the prayer that goes into ministry. I just want that to continue. I want to see each of us seeking God and His kingdom, His glory. I want to see each of us moving in to, to loving, supportive, accountable relationships. See, all these things are already happening I uh, inherit a, a wonderful legacy here. And what I want to do is just to continue that process by teaching you the Word, by, by, by praying for you and with you, by, by listening to you, speaking to you, and together with the rest of the elders, looking at God's Word, seeing where He wants to take us as a church. This is His church. He'll lead us. And as we pray and as we, uh, as we seek Him in His kingdom and His righteousness, as we move into to relationships together. The world around us will see Christ in us. They'll know we're His disciples. They will see Jesus. And they'll know that He is God, our God, our Savior. May God uh, make these things so. I probably have an edge on almost all of you because I have known Chris for about, I don't know, 35 years or more. Probably the only people here that have known Chris longer are uh, Fred and Harriet, his uh, parents, parents, and I've known them almost forever. Uh, Fred was an elder in the church I served in uh, California, and Harriet has been a wonderful friend over the years. I still remember Chris running around their Los Altos home. He's about that tall. Saw him grow, spend uh, some years on the wiki up, up near Santa Rosa. And uh, after he graduated from college, he came to Peninsula Bible Church and was a part of our scribe school there. I had the privilege of teaching Chris in a number of classes. And then about 17 years ago, invited Chris up here to join the staff. Uh, my uh, staffing philosophy has always been to draft the best athlete. Uh, by that I mean to go after people that I believe are gifted, even though I may not know exactly where they will serve at the time. And what I saw in Chris was a deep humility and wisdom. And in, in my mind, the two go together. Uh, the wisest people I know are humble people because they're teachable. Uh, even our Lord said, come learn from me because I am meek and lowly in heart. And it's that uh, humble, teachable spirit that enables men and women to learn from God, to acquire wisdom, and to be able to impart it uh, to others. Uh, unlike Hardin, I've known for two or more years that Chris was the man for this, uh, this position. 
uh, I felt a little bit about a little bit like Barnabas going up to Antioch and teaching for a while and realizing that he had, he had taken that group about as far as he could go and then going off to Tarsus and finding Paul and bringing him back and believing that God could use that man to take that church on to the next level. And I've always felt that about, uh, about Chris. Two years ago, I launched that idea in a board meeting, and it had all the impact of... Uh, <laughs> of uh, uh, <laughs> how shall I put it? It landed with a, with a thud, I'll put it that way. <clears throat> and uh, so I backed off and did not uh, say anything more and just prayed. But how sweet it is to be right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> since I since I so so seldom am. Uh, <laughs> but I'm glad it worked out that way because it was obviously my, not my choice. It was the choice of the elders, and I am deeply grateful that God led them to that uh, conclusion. I have three little short stories I want to leave with you this morning. Uh, and, I, and I hope the Spirit of God plants these stories indelibly in your mind, so that when you think of Chris, you think of these three incidents. They all revolve around the life of Elijah and Elisha, two of my favorite characters. Uh, the first took place at the end of Elijah's life. He takes his young protege, Elisha, uh, on a long walk. They walk from their home up in Bethel, which is up in the highlands of Israel, down uh, through those steep uh, passes that lead to the Jordan. When they came to the Jordan River, uh, Elijah stripped off his mantle, which was the symbol of his office, and he wrapped it up and struck the waters, and the waters parted, and they walked through on dry, uh, dry ground. I suppose... The significance of that miracle, and, and, and you understand that miracles are signs. They're not there just to cause us to go, wow. They're, they're there to impart some truth. And I think the significance of, that, of that, uh, that miracle was to show us something of the power that was resident in Elijah's office, that mantle symbolized the prophetic office. And here's a man with great authority, the same authority basically that Moses had when he took his staff and struck the waters of the Red Sea. So they pass through the water to the other side, and they make their way up the long uh, alluvial slope that, that is in today modern-day Jordan. It slopes down toward the Jordan. And at one point, Elijah turns to Elisha, and he says, What can I do for you? Uh, it's kind of a chancy heart blush, you know, to just give him that opportunity to ask for anything that he wants to, that, that he wants. What Elisha said was, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, the double portion in that culture was the right of the firstborn. The firstborn received twice as much as the other children. Elisha was not asking for the family fortune. What he wanted was to be the heir of Elijah's ministry. Here was a man who did things for which there was simply no analogy in history. Amazing man turned an entire nation away from idolatry and back from God, back to God. And what Elisha wanted was to have the same impact that Elijah had. had. And it's not, not what we all want. Nobody wants to waste his or her life. We want them to be spent meaningfully. So he wanted that ministry that Elijah had. Well, Elijah says to Elisha, "All right," and he gives him a little test, a little ordeal. He says, "If you see me when I go, then you'll have the double portion." You know the story. The, 
Negro spiritual, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, is based on the story. The chariot swung low, swept Elijah away to his, to his home. And Elisha said, I see. Father, Father, he, he cries out to Elijah. The hosts of, of God and the angels, the chariots. Now what happened is that for that just that brief moment, he, he looked into that unseen realm of the spirit, that realm that's all around us. We've talked about the fact that heaven is not up there somewhere. It's another dimension all around us, unseen, but just as real, just as substantial, just as actual as the, as the, as the world of sight, sound, taste, touch. And he saw that realm. Now you see, that was the secret of Elijah's success. It, it, it was not sourced in his intelligence, in his education, his personality, his humor, his background. It was sourced in his ability to look into that unseen realm, to tap the resources that are found there. And Elisha had learned that secret. And therefore, he could enter into the same ministry that Elijah had. And at that point, Elijah's old mantle fluttered to the ground, and Elisha put it on, shrugged it onto his shoulders, and assumed the prophetic role that Elijah had, had maintained. Now, what is it that enables us to see into that realm? Well, it's faith. It's faith. Faith is to the unseen realm what the five natural senses are to the natural realm. It's the means by which we, we move into that other sphere. The, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Faith gives substance to the things that cannot be seen. It makes them real. It makes them actual makes them tangible, brings them into the realm of our experience. Now, I, I've worked with Chris, lived with Chris for a long time. He's a man of faith. I, I feel very much as Paul felt about Timothy. He, he writes to Timothy in his second epistle, and he says, Timothy, I'm convinced that you have the same faith that characterized your mother and your grandmother. I would say the same of, of Chris. He has the faith that, character, that, that characterized his parents. They were... They were people of faith, bold faith. And that was passed on to Chris. He, he has the ability to, to see into that realm. But faith is a, is a living, dynamic thing. It's not static. And like every living thing, it has, it has to be fed or it atrophies and, and uh, shrivels. So the question is, how can, how can Chris grow his faith and how can we help him? Two things that grow faith. One is the Word of God, and the other is prayer. Those are the two indispensable elements of any ministry because those are the things that enable us to see into that realm of unseen things. Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it says, Chris invests himself in the Word of God that he'll be able to see what otherwise cannot be seen. It's the Scriptures that reveals to us God and in all of his attributes, all of his perfection. It's the only way to see him as he is. See. The second element that grows our faith is prayer. Uh, Paul prays that the eyes of your understanding, you can comprehend the height and depth and breadth and width, all the dimensions of the love of God. Prayer operates in some inexplicable way to... Uh, to make what we see in the Word real and tangible. Now, if, if I were to boil ministry down to two things, it would be that. The 
the proclamation of the word and prayer. That's what makes the ministry. That's what makes the ministry. Is he a man of the word? And is he a man of prayer? See. Now, it's been my experience in ministry that ministry is sometimes the greatest enemy of those two elements because the demands can be so heavy and you can get so distracted in other things that you forget what you're about. There was that incident in the early church where the group of people came to the apostles and they said, the widows are not being taken care of. You apostles need to look after them. And the apostles said, very gently but very firmly, we agree with you. This is a need that needs to be met. You go meet it. You find some people that can serve these, these women. We will give ourselves to the word of God and prayer. Because they knew that's what made the ministry. See. As you know, for some months now, Carolyn and I have been working with pastors. And one of our concerns is to pass on to uh, their congregations what what these congregations, pass on to the congregations what they can do for their pastors, how they can love their pastors and how they can keep them focused. And a few weeks ago I sat down and I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote this. As I often say, if I don't quote myself, who will? Um, let your pastor do the work of ministry. The work is fundamentally prayer and the proclamation of the word. The apostles themselves insisted on these two necessities. We will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer and proclamation are the obligations of ministry and constitute a minister's essential task. The work of ministry, first of all, entails solid biblical teaching. Biblical exposition is the voice of God to us in a culture that's drowning us in deceit and lies. Clever, facile talkers may attract a crowd, but it's those who faithfully expound God's word and who relate its truth to life who cause us to grow. This means a good pastor will give himself earnestly to the time-consuming task of Bible study, meditation, and sermon preparation. As the old Puritan Richard Baxter put it, he must not slightly slubber over his sermons. I had to look that word up. Uh, slubber means to carelessly prepare. Secondly, a good pastor will find moments of quietness in the midst of his hectic work schedule to worship God and engage him in prayer for himself and others. This dependence is his main work, Luther said, in the means by which everything else is done. When mountains need moving, people tend to exalt dynamic leaders. But Jesus made it clear that his work is done by those who preach and pray. This and not personality is the source of power that profoundly touches the troubled, the addicted, the afflicted, and the sick. There's no other way to do God's work. In our secular society, however, people are inclined to look for something more, more dynamism, more magnetism, more razzle-dazzle and daring do. A recent survey of 3,000 churchgoers indicated that most people leave a church simply because they don't like the pastor, by which they mean they don't like his style. Commenting on that survey, David Hubbard, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote, I suppose that people mean by this that they don't think their pastor has an attractive personality. But Paul puts the emphasis on his work and not on his personality. The question is this. Is your pastor doing the work? Is he working hard at teaching and preaching God's word? Is he devoted to prayer? Is he leading you into deeper intimacy with God? The fact that he isn't scintillating in the pulpit and rarely shines his shoes has nothing to do with his work. 
Perhaps he isn't the most artful guy around. Perhaps he isn't polished and articulate. And I'm not talking about Chris here. <clears throat> so what? Those are matters that have no bearing on the worth of a person's ministry. Honor your pastor for the work he is called to do. And what is his work? It's preaching and prayer. Those are the parameters. Those are the priorities of the ministry. Now, there's another little story I want to tell you that, that indicates that Elisha learned his lesson well. Took place in another location up in Dothan, a little city about 12 miles north of the city of Samaria. Archaeologists there have discovered that there, there's hardly any wall, just an earthen rampart. It wasn't a strategic city. It wasn't worth defending. There's nothing there to defend. Elisha, now we're talking about Elisha, not Elijah. Elisha and his servant were in temporary residence there. The king of Syria discovered his presence and came after him because Elisha had been tipping off Jehoram, the king of Israel, to the movements of the, of the king of Syria. They were, they were at war. The king of Syria was trying to kill Jehoram. And uh, uh, King Hadad, the king of, king of Syria, made the comment at one point, you know, this man even hears what I say in the bedroom. And you talk about pillow talk. Elisha heard everything that hated then that that Ben-Hadad said, and he was reporting that to Jehoram. So Ben-Hadad decided to take Elisha out. So he mounts a huge campaign, brings his entire army over into northern Israel, and they besiege the city of Dothan. There's not much there to take, so they bed down for the night to wait for the morning. Next morning, Elisha's servant gets up, is preparing to pack the mules, mules and to travel back to their home, and he looks over the walls, and he sees this immense Syrian army. And he panics. He runs back to Elisha and reports. Elisha says, don't worry. There's more of us than there are of them. The servant looks at Elisha. There's more of us than there are of them. And uh, then Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And he opens his eyes and he sees the hosts of God surrounding the city. Now, Chris, that's your job, you know, not just to, to venture into that unseen realm and see things there, but to come back and teach us how to see. Help us to grow eyes to see. And that's done in two ways. You see, it's done by the proclamation of the word. Uh George MacDonald talks about the fact that there's a, there's a chamber in God into which we go, and from that chamber we bring things out of that secret place and dispense them to the people around us. That's your task. To go in and out of that, that unseen realm, to see what, what you can see there, and then come out and tell us what, what you see. God doesn't call you to be original. Uh, our Lord was never original. He said to his disciples, I only tell you what I see the Father doing. I only, I only do what I see the Father doing. Uh, real creative, uh, re, real creativity, real originality comes from that awareness that there's another realm from which we gain our understanding of the things of God, from which we gain our strategy for ministry. Everything comes out of an unseen realm. So, Chris, that's your task to go into that place and then to tell us what you see. And then secondly, it's prayer that helps us open our eyes. Again, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that God would open the eyes of their understanding so they can see all the dimensions 
of the knowledge and the love of God. So again, we come full circle. The primary functions of the ministry are proclamation of the word and prayer. Someone has said uh, the best ministers are not sayers, but seers. The prophets in Israel were called seers because they saw things that others couldn't see. The best sayers are seers. Those that go into that realm, see God, all of his beauty, all of his glory there, and then come out and tell us what they have seen and then pray for us that we will see what they have seen. The third little story, uh, third short story, takes place uh, shortly after the incident with the the chariot. Elijah's mantle flutters down, Elisha puts it on, and and he makes his way back to the Jordan. And when he arrives at the Jordan, he, he, he tries to emulate Elijah's miracle. He takes off his mantle, he rolls it up, and he strikes the water with it. And nothing happened. Now, our texts don't make that very clear, but the Hebrew text makes it abundantly clear, and all of the early translations uh, spell that out for us. Struck the water and nothing happened. Now, I like to envision uh, Elisha. That, well, let's see. Now, how did Elisha do, Elijah do that? Is, if I can get the right wrist movement in this, you know. And maybe I need to walk a little further into the river and get a little deeper, you know. And he strikes it again and nothing happens. And then he says, where is the God of Elijah? And as often the case, whenever we ask a question, it's answered. Oh, it's not Elijah. It's not the mantle. It's not the man. It's not the methods. It's not the materials. It's the power of God. It's God in Elijah. That's what made him the man that he was. The mantle is nothing. The mantle simply symbolizes the fact that this was a prophet who'd given his heart to God, who had learned to go into that realm of unseen things and from that realm bring out those good things to us. So uh, Elisha, full of faith, strikes the water and they cleave and he walks through on dry ground as Elijah had and There are 50 prophets standing on the bank, and they say, this man comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Because they saw that behind him was the power of God. It wasn't the man. It was God working through the man. These 50 men say, let's go find Elijah. Let's go look him up. Bring him back. Elijah says, oh, he's gone. He's gone. Don't bring him back. He says, oh, we've got to find him. And uh, the text actually says they badgered him until he was embarrassed. So he said, all, all right, okay, go look. And they went to look, and of course they couldn't find him, and they came back and then began to center themselves around this uh, new prophet, Elisha, and, and his ministry. The point of which is, don't long for the old prophet or the former pastor. Uh, let him go off into the hills and die. And there's some, some boneyard out there for old pastors. Okay? Forget the old guys. We have a new prophet. Follow him. It's not the man. It's not the methods. It's not his materials. It's God resident in the man. Let's pray. Father, I simply add my voice to many who give their thanks that Chris is the man that you've chosen for this ministry. 
And we uh, look forward to sitting under his teaching and learning to see those things that cannot be seen. And to, to enjoy to a depth never before experienced all the dimensions of the love of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.